Well, friends, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please join me now by turning to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. And this morning we're studying verses 12 to 18. And this morning's message is titled, Obedience Above All. Summer skies provide the perfect time to see the beauty and the brightness of a starry night. However, when you're in a city and you look up into the sky, the star's glow is drowned out, is drowned out by the world's light. But in the country, each star pops with its own unique glow. What the Lord wants to teach us this morning through this text is how we can set our lives apart from the world so that we can shine brightest for his glory. And the way he does that is not by instructing his people to remove themselves from the world, but to live in the world for him. To live for him in the midst of the world. In this text, the Lord teaches us that our obedience sets us apart to shine like stars for his glory. So now, if you would, please join, my, join me by turning your attention to the best part of this morning's message. And that is the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you, may be, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be, to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Amen. Let's go to the Lord quickly and ask for his help to read and study and understand his word. Lord, I want to ask you this morning to sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. What I want to ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. I want to ask that you would fill us afresh with the spirit that we might hear and see without distraction from the enemy, from indwelling sin, your word and what our responsibility is in light of your word. But please help us. We know you will. In Christ's name, amen. Our first point this morning is hit the gym, verse 12. 
Now, perhaps one of the most disliked words in the English language is the word gym. I think this is probably for a number of reasons. Maybe it's because someone's not in great shape. So when they hear the word gym, they get discouraged because they don't go enough. Or maybe someone is going to the gym, but they're not happy with their results. So if asked about it, they think the question implies that they look gymless. Well, likewise, I think that one of the most disliked words in the Christian language is the word obedience. Christians often do not want to use this word because like the gym, it can evoke a lot of emotions. But Paul wants to get our attention this morning. He wants us to understand something right at the outset of our text this morning. He wants us to understand that obedience is fundamental to our faith. And more than simply understanding, he wants the Christian to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, it's one thing to know that you need to go to the gym, but it's another thing altogether to go to the gym and get into that routine. Likewise, it's one thing to know that you need to obey God. But it's another thing altogether to begin walking with him in obedience. So Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Paul's word there, the first word there in verse 12, therefore, is a huge hinge connecting this section to the previous one on Christ's example of humility and exaltation. With that one, that, with that one word, therefore, I think Paul is saying that Jesus' example of obedience unto death and exaltation to life provides us with every conceivable reason to obey him. Paul wants the Christian to see that though Christ followed God's will all the way to death, it resulted in his exaltation to everlasting life, for everlasting life. In other words... Heart-motivated obedience never goes unrecognized by the Lord. So he says to the church in Philippi, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now this phrase, work out your own salvation, is another way of Paul saying to the Christian, walk in obedience. It's a call to hit the gym. It's a call for the Christian to exercise their faith by obeying God's will revealed in his word. Now, I think this is such an important verse, isn't it? As a church, we rightly hold fast to the teaching that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. 
And sometimes I think that all of the alones in that sentence can confuse and cause people to think that as Christians, we simply sit back and do nothing, that we have no responsibility. But this text, Paul, Paul tells us in this text that we are to work, work out your own salvation is what he says. Now, this means that, that though we don't contribute to our salvation, God is telling us that we have a responsibility in light of our salvation. What is that responsibility? Well, J.C. Ryle explains it like this. In justification, our own works have no place at all. And simple faith in Christ is the one thing needful. In sanctification, our own works are of vast importance. And God bids us fight and watch and pray and strive and take pains and labor. Friends, Ryle is right. Our responsibility in sanctification is of vast importance. We can't slack up and we cannot fall asleep. God bids us, as Ross says, to fight and to watch and to pray and to strive and to take pains and to labor. And Paul adds that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Did you expect that phrase? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If this was the first time that your eyes had laid sight of this text or your ears had heard this text, would you have anticipated that phrase? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What Paul wants us to see and understand and to know is how a reverential fear and a trembling before the holiness of God serves to aid us in the call to obey in all circumstances. Friends, do you see that? Paul wants us to see that this fear and trembling of God is not a stumbling block in your sanctification. It is a massive aid It's a blessing. It's right. It's appropriate. It's necessary. What does it do? This reverential and trembling before the holiness of God serves to aid us in the call to obey in all circumstances. So, friend, let me ask you a question about your obedience to the Lord. Do you hit the gem of Christian obedience only when it's time to go to the beach and show off? In other words, when people are watching you and you know people are watching you? Or are you in the Christian gym working out your salvation throughout every season and every circumstance? And God calls us to obey him at all times. God calls us to obey him at all times while relying on the Spirit for strength. 
Now, how can we rely on the Spirit for strength in working out our salvation? I think that's what God teaches us in this next point. Our second point, inside-out Christianity, verse 13. A long time ago, I was a part of a Bible study that had a few folks from FCA, which, which is the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And I'll never forget this one guy who was coming at that time. Not only would this guy eat all of my food and drink a half gallon of milk every day, he told our group a story that makes me think of this verse. During the study, we would go around the circle with prayer requests, and on this occasion, he had a praise request. He said that while driving into the study on that particular day, he noticed a car on the side of the road, and so he stopped to help them. The people had a flat tire, but they were unable to fit the jack under the car in order to get it up. So in this dire moment, as he recalls, he simply picked the front end of the car up and held it into the air until they finished changing the tire. But make no mistake about it, he insisted. This was not his Samson's strength, but it was the Lord's that enabled this great feat. As funny as I think this story is, especially considering the fact that it was told in the company of a group of girls that he may or may not have been interested in, <laughs> it reminds me of what Paul is actually saying in this verse. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In verse 12... Our first point, Paul clearly says that the Christian has the responsibility to work out your salvation. Obey the Lord at all times, non-negotiable. Fundamental, fundamental to the faith is Christian obedience. That's, that's the first point. That's verse 12. He clearly teaches that the Christian has to work out your salvation. But in this verse... In verse 13, mind-blowing verse, as you're going to see, Paul takes us behind the scenes to see what is at the bottom of Christian obedience. When we pull back the curtain, at the end of a righteous life, in search of the secret, Paul says that we won't find a man or a woman pulling the strings. But we'll find God. He says to the Christian, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's work through the person of the Holy Spirit does not begin by altering the exterior of the Christian, but instead, Paul says, he works in you. How far in our hearts does he go to work? How deep in our hearts does the gospel have power to penetrate? Paul says, that he goes as far into the heart as to affect the will. 
That's as far as you can go in the heart, my friend. Paul says that God goes as far into the heart of a person as to affect the will of a person. God works in you both to will and to work. I want to break this phrase down into two parts. The first is by asking, what does it mean for God to work in our will? Here's what it means. It's the difference between verbs. I have to read my Bible, and I want to read my Bible. I have to obey my parents, and I want to obey my parents. I have to love my wife, and I want to love my wife. I have to kill my pride and walk in humility. I want to kill my pride and walk in humility. I have to stop looking at pornography. I want to stop looking pornography. I have to stop gossiping and slandering and disputing and grumbling. I want to stop gossiping and slandering and disputing and grumbling. That's the difference. Though discipleship often entails the Christian doing things out of discipline, Fundamentally, discipleship should entail the Christian willingly obeying God, not beating themselves into submission in order to get their exterior in line with what they think God wants. No, it's the work of the Spirit inside the heart to produce the conformity to Christ. That's that's what Paul is saying here. Fundamentally, discipleship should entail the Christian willingly obeying God. His work in our lives changes the desires and therefore the direction of our lives. If you're a Christian, you know that to be true. Before Jesus saved us, we followed our own will, which did not please God, but made us objects of his judgment. But when he saved us, he transformed us from the inside out. He changed our very hearts. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel said that when the Savior came, he would do this in Ezekiel 36. Verses 26 and 28. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and listen and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Friends, 
Do you see what he's saying? It's the work of the Spirit in the Christian's life that causes you to be careful to obey God's rules, God's law, God's commandment. The Spirit works in our will to produce the desire to obey Christ. Wow. I don't know if you've studied other religions in the world, but there is none other that says this. All the other world's faiths say, change from the outside. Conform yourself. Christianity says, you cannot. I will put, a, I will put my spirit within you. I will put a new heart Within you. Therefore, that new heart will beat out the blood, the desires, the pulse to do everything that I'm calling you to do. That's stunning. It's remarkable. It's worshipful. Friends, that's why when we talk about the Christian's need to repent, it's always 180 degrees. Turn away from sin. And walk in his statutes. It's not turn away from his sin and just stop doing that thing. It's turn from your sin and obey him. When he changes our will, he changes our life's aim. We go from aiming at self-pleasure to pleasing God. I've given this a lot of thought lately. And I think an area in our context that we've been neglecting this text application the most is the Christian's counsel and response to the LGBTQ plus people. Most Christians say that it's enough for the same-sex attracted person to simply not act out those passions. But this verse says something more. It says that God's gospel goes as far as our wills, which changes our passions, which changes our desires. And listen, this is good news. This isn't sad hour. This is happy hour. The sweet and powerful promise of the gospel is to come to Christ and be changed. Come to Christ and no longer be the same. Come to Christ and be different. Come to Christ and conform to his image. Over time, as a Christian submits their will to his word, God promises to change someone's affections. And listen, if you've been walking with Christ long enough, you know that that's not overnight. That is a day to day to day to day to day dying to yourself. That's why Ryle says, get up and fight, work, strive. Pray. If you've been walking with Christ for any time at all, you know that this isn't magic. It's discipleship, which has its root in discipline. It is die to yourself every day, which means die to your ungodly passions and submit them to his will. Submit them to his word and trust him with all of your being. He's going to change them. 
He's going to change my passions. Right now they're not godly, but he's going to change them. To be what he wants. To be how he created. That is really good news for a terrible sinner like me. The second part I want us to consider is this. What does Paul mean by to will and to work? Well, when the Lord influences our will, (laughs) changes our will, he also is the one who empowers us to work for his good pleasure. This is another stunning reality, friends. God not only gives us the necessary desire to walk in his statutes, but he also empowers us to work, which means to walk out in his statutes. The desire and the empowerment, he does them both. Jerry Bridges sums this up nicely. He says, Though the power for godly character comes from Christ, the responsibility of developing and displaying that character is ours. We are dependent on God to enable us to do what we are responsible to do. I mean, that is really cool. Parents, do you teach your children like this? Or when you give them commandments from God's word, do you, are you calling on them to do it in their own strength? We need to supplement the call to obey with a reminder to our children to rely on his grace for the enabling power to obey. That not only gives our kids... The ability to obey the Lord, but it also gives them the freedom to obey the Lord. It's not a yoke, but it's a worshipful moment. It's not a yoke of slavery, but it's a worshipful release to say, I'm coming to you, Lord, to obey you, for you to help me. And friends, This results in all the praise and all the glory given to God alone. From beginning to end, he is the one who supplies us with the grace necessary to do everything that he calls us to do. Starting with the desire. As you can tell, I think that's amazing. That leads to our third point this morning. Show yourself to be children of God. Verses 14 to 18. In some houses, you find what's called a dimmer, which is a sliding knob that adjusts the bulb's brightness and illumination in that particular room. Now, what's stunning about this section is that Paul is saying that the Christian life lived out before a dark and depraved world 
is like that dimmer. Our faithful obedience to him results in us shining brighter for his glory. And our negligence in obeying results in a lack of light shown for his glory. The apostle is certainly addressing a particular issue within this local church at this point. In chapter 4, verse 2, as we're going to see in a few weeks, he commands two women to agree in the Lord. Their grumbling and disputing was apparently threatening to cause a division in the church. So Paul is telling them to stop it. He says, stop grumbling and disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. But as you know, friends, this issue is not isolated to Philippi. Or if you've read your Old Testament, you know that God's people have historically been known to be a disputing and a grumbling people. I think what's influencing Paul's phrase here is his knowledge, his profound knowledge of the Old Testament. As he remembers the people of Israel and their wandering in the wilderness. Their suffering was tempting them to grumble against the Lord. And Paul's concern for this church is that they would avoid Israel's failure. In Numbers 11, verse 1, it says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. If that doesn't provoke fear and trembling, friends, I don't know what should. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. Paul's saying to the church and to us that God is never pleased or glorified when his people grumble and dispute. The Oxford Dictionary says that to grumble means to complain about something in a bad-tempered way. To complain about something in a bad-tempered way. And dispute means to disagree, argue, or debate. Now, Paul's not forbidding us in this text from communicating our confusion regarding circumstances in life either to God or to brothers and sisters in the church. After all, the Psalms are full of moments when the author cries out to the Lord for help, and he asks God where he is. But friends, that's not grumbling or disputing. God wants us to model our prayers and our communication in the church, in the body of Christ, like these Psalms. So he's not forbidding us to communicate our confusion regarding circumstances, but he is forbidding us to complain about them. He is forbidding us to argue and debate about them. Listen, we can and should wrestle with God. We can and should wrestle in prayer with God over particular things that we don't yet have. 
that God's given us a godly desire for. We should wrestle with him over those things. That's not discouraged in the Bible. That's encouraged. But we should avoid wrestling with God with a sense of arguing or debating or bad-temperedness with God. Or even with one another. We don't complain to one another about our circumstances or about our situations. And we don't argue with one another. It was so serious in Philippi. That's the only observable reason for why Paul wrote this letter. You want to know how serious grumbling and arguing in the body is? So serious that Paul writes the letter of Philippians to this church. So don't grumble and dispute, Paul says. But what is the reason why we should be careful to observe our behavior before the world? Paul says in verse 15 that it's because we live in a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine like lights. How about that? Why should we watch our behavior in the world? Why should we watch our disputes? Why should we avoid arguing in the church? Well, Paul says it's because... Two reasons. One, the dimmer switch goes up when we're not doing that, so we're bringing glory to God. And two, it's because, don't you see, you live in a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights. Paul's saying to us that we shine our brightest when we are living obediently to God's word. We are shining our brightest. We are radiating God's greatness the most. We are showing our otherworldliness, our other citizenship, when we are walking in obedience to the Lord. Friend, you want your life to count? You want your life to be of great value for God's glory? It's remarkably simple. Remarkably simple. It is this. Obey him in all things and in all circumstances through all trials. Obey him. And Paul's saying, if you do that, I don't have to know your ACT score. I don't have to know where you work. I don't have to know your family lineage. If you do this thing... You will be of great value in bringing God glory. For an average guy like me, that gives me a sigh of relief. Wait a minute. God's just calling for my obedience? That he would use, use me for his glory if I'm just obedient to him? I'm in line. Yes, Lord, thank you. We shine our brightest when we are living obediently to God's word. You remember what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 14 to 16? He says this, 
You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see what? Your good works. Where do you think Paul's getting this theology? His influence from the Old Testament, and he knows Jesus' words. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I mean, the bulbs should be going off in your mind like, this is remarkable. My obedience, my obedience and how much I obey him. So that it makes you want to reevaluate every area of your life. Let me lay my life out on the table. Let me look at my private life. Is there any area in my life where I'm not walking in obedience to him? If so, I'm dimming the switch to bring him glory, and I don't want that. So I'm going to repent. God, I'm sorry. Conform my desires to be godly. All right, let me look at my public area. In my workplace, am I I doing something? Am I saying something that isn't bringing him glory? Because if so, I'm dimming the switch, and I don't want that. I want people to see the light. I want them to see him. So I'll repent. My children, with my wife, is there any way of communication? Am I speaking harshly? Am I being negative? I'm Am I not building up when it comes to the church? Am I giving myself to serve for his glory? Or am I withholding my gifts? If so, let me repent so I can dim that switch up for his glory. That's what this text should cause us to do. Lord, open my eyes to see if there's any hidden area of my life that grieves you. And if there is, I repent. I'm going to work out my salvation while I'm trusting you to empower me and enable me to do that. (laughs) That's just really cool that Jesus says the same thing. I think it's cool when the authors are saying the same things in different places in the Bible. It's continuity. It's the same message. Well, as Paul continues in verse 16, he says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Holding fast that in the day of Christ I may be proud. I may be proud. That's interesting language, right? What's Paul saying there? Well, I think that once again, we are seeing Paul's pastoral heart beating through the pages of the text. And his passion. (laughs) Listen, Paul wants his life to count for Christ. He does not want to waste his life. And the way in which he is measuring whether or not his life counted was by the obedience of the church that he planted. And the reason that's weird for our Western ears to hear is because we are so individualistic. But Paul was not. He was communal by nature. Paul's life 
was wrapped up with the church. So much so that his own evaluation of success at the end of his life was dependent upon the church's success. His own evaluation of whether or not he ran the race well was if the churches were bearing fruit. That's way different than the way we think about things, isn't it? But God wants us to think like that. He has us in a local church, and he has us there to contribute. He has us there to be a blessing. He has us there to use our gifts and our talents and our resources so that we may see fruit, so the church may see fruit and give glory to God. And in verses 17 to 18, he makes sure to say that even if his life is poured out, referring to his own persecution and death, for Christ, because he gave his life for the church's good, because he gave his life for the church's good, he says, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. So friends, I think it's become clear, I hope it's become clear through this text that God is calling each of us to faithful obedience. For obedience sets us apart to shine like stars for his glory. Jerry Bridges says in conclusion, To be like Jesus is not just to stop committing a few obvious sins, such as lying, cheating, gossiping, and thinking impure thoughts. To be like Jesus is to always seek to do the will of the Father. It is to come to the place where we delight to do the will of God. It is to come to the place where we delight to do the will of God, however sacrificial or unpleasant that may seem to us at the time, simply because it is his will. Thank you, Jay Bridges. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close. Lord, we love you, and we thank you, most importantly, that you love us. Thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for helping us through this time as we studied your word. Thank you for that, Lord. And I just ask that you wouldn't, that, that your work, that it wouldn't stop, God, that you would now, God, that you would give us the grace for that seed not to fall on any soil, that it would grow up and be scorched by the sun or grow up to be picked off by the birds, but that it would grow up, that that seed from your word, God, that it would grow up like a tree planted by streams of living water. God, give us the grace to live our lives believing what you say in Philippians 2, 12 to 18. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.